Welcome to the Managing Managers podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kwa, founder of the Tech Lead Academy and curator of the newsletter for leaders in tech, Level Up. In this podcast, I'm chatting with senior engineering managers, directors, VPs of engineering, and others who have walked the path of managing other managers, where we will uncover some great stories and lessons learned. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm very excited to be joined by James Stenier Hoyter today. Uh, James Stenier is a director of engineering at Shopify. He's also the author of Become an Effective Software Manager and Effective Remote Work. He holds a PhD in computer science and runs the engineeringmanager.com. Welcome, James. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I always forget I did a PhD. It was a long time ago now. <laughs> <laughs> Studies a long time ago for a lot of us, yeah. I think. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really excited to be here because, um, you know, I think our, our interests align quite well uh, in terms of you've done a lot to help people move from going from IC or individual contributor to entering managers. And then the next hump, which you've already gone through, which is the transition to managing other managers. And so I'm very excited to have you here today. Yeah, thanks. It's, a, it's an interesting topic to get into. And I think um, when I was first starting out in management, there wasn't any material at all. And now I think we're in a pretty good place for managers, but we're not in a good place for managing managers. So it's like the next, the next literature hump, I think, as well. Absolutely. And uh, looking forward to exploring some of your ideas. Um, before we uh, begin, uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, so uh, I know that you spent a lot of time at Brandwatch uh, and sort of grew through lots of different roles. So can you tell us about your leadership journey there and maybe the different transitions that you had? Yeah, sure. So, you know, when I joined Brandwatch, it was a, a small startup. I think I was employee 20 something. So it was, uh, we'd had a seed round. But in terms of the company, it was really just a, a clump of engineers with no real structure, just building stuff. You know, this was before we we were really any anything as a success as, as we were. And I think I got into that startup. I'd like to say it was all planned, but it wasn't. I did I did do a PhD. Um, I was working in compilers. I loved compilers. And when I came out the other end, I really wanted to go into academia. And it was around about the time of the financial crisis. So all the funding had dried up for, for academic positions. So it was more of a necessity to uh, get money because I needed to pay rent and eat food rather than some kind of pre-planned destination. But I, I did join this small company. And the reason that I joined this startup at Seed Round was because a lot of people who I actually taught at the university when I was doing my PhD had gone on to, to do their first job there. And it just seemed really exciting. It was really interesting product doing lots of big data, web scraping, social media stuff for the first time. This was 10 years ago. And um, I just sort of give it a shot. It was down the road, quite literally walking down the road to this company. So it was super convenient. Great commute. Yeah, great commute, um, you know, back back in the day. So a lot of it was, was out of necessity that I joined this company, but it just so happened that it was a fantastic place to start. Um, not long after I joined, you know, we went through into Series A round and after Series A, we had B and C, so raising VC capital. And all of this meant that the company grew very, very quickly. And as you probably know, and as your listeners probably know, if you want to really learn sort of 10 years in one year over and over again, you, you go to an early stage startup that's growing very, very quickly. And that's where you know I progressed through these different job roles. I mean, at the beginning, we didn't have very sort of San Francisco facing job titles, which was something I worked on a lot later on to make sure the careers track lined up. Um, but that was my first management gig. It was also my first managing managers gig. And as the company grew, expressing my intent, 
obviously startups can't pay huge amounts of money. So you also have that opportunity if, if you're there and you're a trusted employee, you do get a chance to step into these roles and have a shot at them. And that was pretty much the fundamental reason that I got to do it. Amazing. Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. A, a wonderful career growth uh, and totally agree in terms of that startup and high growth. So much learning opportunity. And, um, you know, you, from your experiences, you spent some time doing that engineering management, which turned into that book, become an effective software manager. Um, and then at some point you ended up managing other managers. So what was that transition pivot point and what was that like for you? Yeah. So, the, I mean, the first time I led a team, a single team, of ICs, I think there were only two or three teams in the whole company. I mean, we weren't we weren't very big, um, so that was the chance that I got to build that trust and to prove that I could do the job. And I think, as you mentioned about the book, like the reason that started to develop as the blog at the time, and then later the book was just the material wasn't really there. So we were all kind of learning this stuff for the first time, and then I think history repeated itself as we went from Series A to Series B. We got this very, very big Series B round, and it's like, okay, well, part of this is we'll double or maybe even triple, I can't remember exactly, but significantly grow the engineering department size. And I think the same thing is true. It's like you're adding an extra layer into the department, you're chopping things up by responsibility areas or product areas. And I just pretty much put my hand up and said, hey, like I'd, I would love to do this. Obviously, I you know respect if you want to hire people externally, but at the time, and this was sort of pre-remote, you know, down in Brighton, which is on the south coast of England, you know, we weren't in London. So I think in terms of the talent that we could um, persuade to relocate and come down to Brighton or commute to Brighton for less money than people would get in London was not the most attractive proposition. So it was a great, great opportunity for people coming up in the ranks like myself to say, hey, I'd love to do this. Let me have a go, at least see how I can do. So that's how that, that turned out. And it was a team of I had four leads reporting to me when it got to fully full size. So each of those leads had a team of eight or so. And then I also had senior ICs as well, sort of as sort of right hand roles. Got it. Awesome. And then uh, let's talk about that transition a little bit more. So by that time when you put up your hand, how long had you been sort of a entering manager for? Uh, and then when you stepped in, what did that change for you? Yeah, good question. So I think I'd been at the company maybe for about four years by the time that happened. I mean, each sort of two-year period I found at Brownwatch, and the reason I stayed there for so long is that each sort of couple of years was very, very different from before because of various things that were going with scale and and pivots and acquisitions and all sorts of stuff. So it was always very, very interesting. And I could always tell that narrative externally of, look, yes, it may be above average time spent at a company for many people, but you can bucket it into these like six or seven stages, which were very, very different. Um but yeah, going back to your question. So I think I was there for a year and a half before I managed anybody. That's about when the team structure started. And then I did that role for probably another two. And that bridges the Series A to Series B gap that we had. And we raised that money at Series B. And then the hiring pipeline just became stuffed full of people. And we needed to grow grow more areas and teams. And I think I must have been there about four, four years, four and a half years by the time I stepped into that. Um, so I felt that I had the, the gig down pretty well um, in terms of provably demonstrating that I could do management of ICs. And I think I'd had enough opportunities because of the size of the company and also being closer to the exec there because we were small, that they could trust me with the sort of elevated responsibility, privilege, access to information, I think, which is very, very important as you sort of start to go up the org chart. 
Yeah, amazing. And then um, when you transitioned, um, I mean, it's great that you had that opportunity. Uh, you'd been studying, I guess, like management at a team level for a while to do that job really well. How did you start responding to these new responsibilities or scope? Like, what was your reaction to, oh, now I'm allowed to do this, but what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, the reaction is that there isn't really a list of things that you should be doing. I think that's the thing you start to find when you get to the managing managers level. I think the sort of the blueprint of managing one team is pretty well locked down. You know, coach your, coach your individuals, ship the things you need to ship, prioritize work, all of that is quite tangible. And even though every company is quite different, you can probably fit that model to most single teams. But managing managers is kind of different because you may have different levels of experience with your, with your leads that are reporting to you. Some maybe need a lot of hands-on coaching because they're doing it for the first time. Others may have just as much experience as you, as you have in that role and you don't really need to have that high touch with them. So I think that's where you start to firstly work out exactly what your leads and your reports need because I think it becomes very different because one person being hands-on with them is super useful. The other person you're meddling and getting in the way. So you have to really like understand for each team, each person what they need and establish those sort of contracts and boundaries between each of them. And then I think... Additionally, it's where you start to find yourself getting more detached from the hands-on code. Now, I still think you should absolutely be technically involved, architectural decisions, technical direction, all that kind of stuff. Yes, 100%. But you, when you begin to have multiple teams, which sometimes are working on quite different things, it's kind of odd to say, want to still be very hands-on with what one team is doing, but then not be hands-on at all with another. And I think that's where you start to need to think about, okay, well, if I have a given week, 70% of my time is already allocated for, and then there's that 30% self-directed time. You need to start making very conscious choices about how am I actually going to spend that time for the good of my teams and for the good of the company and for the good of my manager. And that's where it becomes quite fuzzy, I think. Mm, yeah, amazing. So um, let's go to that. Um, as you transitioned into that, um, you talked about that sort of contracting and trying to work out what your leads kind of need from you. Um, so when you stepped into that sort of role leading other people, were you starting to manage your previous peers or how did that work? And what did you have to do sort of contracting wise to establish boundaries? Yeah, good question. I think, I think one may have been a previous peer for sure. I think we had one person who was an external hire. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, personally, I never found it too difficult to transition into, you know, the whole being someone's boss thing. And I think um, if you, I mean, that exercise that I wrote about on my blog and in my book called Contracting, which is just a simple set of questions that just sort of, if you're starting a new relationship with somebody to just say, hey, like, what do you really need from me? What do I really need from you? How do we know that this is working out? How do we know that it's not working out? And just having all of that conversation up front, I think really helps set the foundation of that relationship. And for example, managing a peer for who we used to be a peer, you already know them really well. You already know their strengths. You may know their weaknesses, but you know that they have all the context that they need. So in this particular individual's example, it was just, hey, like I fully trust you. I've worked with you before. You're great. I'm here if you need me. Let's work out what we need to keep each other updated on. Let's work out how we can, you know, meet together every week and and work together every week in a way that's really productive for both of us. But fundamentally, you can kind of say, right, of all the effort I need to spend, you're on the the low end of the list, and that's good because actually being able to delegate fully to people and trust people fully means you can over-index on the areas that need you more. 
So I think it's you've only got so much time, and I think you have to really understand in that contract with everybody who reports to you what needs an outsized amount of your your input and what needs a, a lower amount of your input. Great. And um, if I understand it right, one of the other people that you were managing was a new hire. Were you involved in their hiring process or was that already done by the time that you transitioned into your role? Good question. So I think around about the time that we hired lots and lots of people, I think that was going back to some of your earlier questions where I started to get exposed to the more department-wide things or company-wide things. So you know, if you're, if you're a small company and you've sort of word of mouth hired or hired people you recommend in the very early days, you don't know how to have a hiring process that works really well. You don't know how to do good job descriptions. You don't know how to structure the interviews. So we came up with all of that stuff. So a lot of people who are coming in at series B stage were people that had gone through the pipeline that we'd come up with for the first time. Nothing was particularly original. It was lots of reading around and seeing what other companies do, taking the best bits that, that work for us and ignoring the bits that don't. But the way that we structured our hiring was quite high touch in terms of the amount of time that we got to really understand what people wanted. Because, um, you know, certainly people who are working for a startup, you have to be really realistic with the upside and the downside of, the, of this position. And we really wanted to over-index on people who wanted to learn, who wanted to be experiencing new things for the first time. And we could offer as much of that as people wanted. But if you have people coming in who maybe have worked to larger roles or, or roles where they've earned loads of money and they're coming in with like super hard expectations on what they earn and we, we're a startup we can't offer all of these things so it gave us a chance to to really get the right people in who who fit for us at the time that's really great and i can imagine in that sort of rapid growth um environment you're doing a lot of hiring uh doing a lot of onboarding a lot of individual contributors but I guess you're not doing as many management hires yet. So did you have to build out that process and thinking about sort of onboarding for entering managers? And is that something that was already there or did you have to sort of improve that? We had a, a tiny proportion of people join externally into engineering management roles. It was only when we got bigger that we, well, it's through acquisition really, um, that we we got senior leaders. I think our success in, in hiring engineering managers from the market when we were small was just very, very, very low and poor. We couldn't offer enough money. Um, where we were located, it was hard to get people to also want to almost reverse commute outside of the capital where they had people with the experience to come down to a small town to work with us. So really, you know, we, we hired like one, one external engineering manager who was great, who was someone looking to get more autonomy, to learn more things, to be exposed to more of the stuff at a startup um, where you can learn rather than necessarily earn. But Yet most of our managers came from within following the same path that I did. You know, you look for people with potential and you go, hey, give it a go. I mean, I trust you. You trust me. If you want to do it for a while, if it doesn't work out, there's a safety net of you just going back to what you're doing before. There's no no hard feelings. So we always offered that kind of get out clause of like, hey, try it for six months. See how it works out. If it doesn't work out, you're not exiting the company. You just go back to being an IC again. It's cool. Love it. I love that reversibility and that experimentation. And it really fits that sort of, yeah, startup ex, uh, sort of learning experience of, you know, if you like it, continue. Otherwise, yeah, go back to being an individual contributor and that's perfectly fine too. Um, I heard you say that, uh, you know, spotting potential. So what would you look for for potential managers? Hmm. I think um, you often observe it 
in potential managers where there's a, a real pragmatism between engineering quality, speed to market, how you talk to people, interact with people who are technical, non-technical. There's a lot of the sort of the soft skill size, which I think if you're if you're progressing people from within, you get a lot of opportunity to observe. And that's why hiring managers is really hard because often in the interview process, you can't observe all of that. You know, you can maybe see where somebody's worked, um, maybe get some references, but if you're progressing ICs from within into management roles, you already have built trust. You understand that they're respectful, good people who you could give them a team and you know that those people will be tracked well and, and they'll be coached and progress well. So I think you're also looking for people who are in it for the right reason. And I think the career tracks by the time that I left the company were in a good place where we really did have dual career tracks that compensated pretty much the same, almost, I think the same for for, the, for that journey. But in the early days, there was still that stigma in, I think a lot of the industry, and especially more in Europe as well than America, where beyond a certain amount of seniority, the only way that if you really wanted to earn more money was you'd become a manager. And I think that forced people into that role sometimes for the wrong reasons. So going back to your question, which was spotting potential, you get to observe people doing that for the right reasons, even as part of their IC role. And then if they say that they want to move into management, it's like, well, yeah, I can see that you can already do this. Yeah, amazing. That's a, that's really great. And you're right, with that touch point, you get more of those experiences and observations that you can sort of see if they're sort of moving in that direction of what you think they need to be to be a good uh, manager. Absolutely. Um, you talked about sort of correcting the career ladder, and that feels like it's a, um, a good duty for somebody who's not just a manager of a team. So can you explain what triggered that and what you had before, what you ended up with? Yeah. So I think in the early days, we, well, to begin with, we didn't really have one, which was part of the problem. So I think um, going through the exercise of trying to define your career ladder, because I think when you're growing really, really quickly as a startup, even though you're aware that a very big tech company, you'll have things like principal engineers or distinguished engineers, or these titles that only really exist when there are many, many thousands of people. It's good to sort of take that and have it as a blueprint because getting it right early on is super important in order to ensure that you can hire people at the right level, you compensate people at the right level, that it's very clear how you progress, which is often you know, if, if anyone's ever been a manager and never had career tracks and their stuff like, how do I get to the next level? And I don't even know what the levels are. Um, having all of that early and in place was something I was very fond of. And I think the Brandwatch career tracks are still on um, progression.fyi. I think they're still attributed to, to me. Um, getting that early on where you can really see how the management progression works and how the IC progression works. And also in a way, visually, where both of them are side by side. So you can say, okay, so an IC at this level of seniority is kind of equivalent to a manager at this level of seniority. That also helps you set that compensation equality as well, which is which is dead important. And I think what's also nice about that as well is that the reality is as you progress in management and you're progressing individual contributor, there's a huge amount of overlap in the responsibilities and also the way you expect somebody to work and present themselves and, and interact with the company. So being able to really see that, you know, that's expected of everybody, regardless of what your role is, it was really good ahead of time. Amazing. And um, this sort of building a 
career ladder or growth ladder. Um, it's something that a lot of directors or heads will end up doing, particularly in sort of startup land, where, as you say, you know, having something is better than nothing. Um, if you were to think about the timeline, like when you thought, okay, we need this, and by the time you ended up with like version one, what was that sort of time frame for you, and how did you go about approaching it? So it was around about when I moved into the managing manager's role, and as you as you sort of indicated in our in our prep, like I had this job title of like head of analytics for a while, which I remember getting that job title and I was like, I don't like that job title. Why don't I like that? And there's a couple of reasons. I was like, one, analytics was the name of our product, but presenting that externally, it makes it feel like I'm a data engineer type person or, or kind of um, marketing type person. And that was not true. And then also the sort of the head of, which was more of a European flavor of job title didn't really map to the kinds of companies that I looked at for inspiration, where it went the usual engineering manager, senior engineering manager, director, VP. And I just looked at that and went, Why, what's happened here? And I think that was when it was indica indicated that we hadn't really thought about it properly. And I think the way that I also observed that was I was thinking that there's lots of up and coming people in our industry that were, were joining Brownwatch and accelerating their careers. And I was always thinking of what's next for them. And if we don't get things like progression and job titles correct, then when these folks go out onto the market in hopefully many years from when they joined, people are going to look at their CVs and almost misclassify what they're doing before they've even got a chance to get in the door to an interview. So that's when I was starting to look at well, what do Google do? You know, what do Facebook do at the time? And what, what, what were Twitter doing and, and seeing that, yes, there was some commonality in how they did IC progression and management progression. And we should probably do that as well, because I want the interface between our job titles and industry job titles to be the same. And also there's already a lot of material out there in that format that we can then bring in and copy. Yeah, amazing. And then a time frame wise, like how long did it take you uh, as a sort of project, if you think about it from that to... I think I wrote it in like a Google sheet in maybe... A few days <laughs> and then yeah. and then okay. it was one of those things where you know we were still small enough at the time where i just sent it around my my seniors and and my peers and said does this seem reasonable and it was like yeah actually that does seem a lot more reasonable and then i think we didn't change everybody's job title immediately but you know once we got to see that this was a really useful reference and people will keep opening it and we sort of specified it in similar to um how it is online at the moment where for every level you have the, the role and the seniority sort of on, on one axis, and then you have the skill sets on the other axis. So things like communication and leadership and technical contribution, and then you can kind of create a matrix and go, okay, so if someone is a VP of engineering, what does that mean for their communication skills? What does it mean for their influence? And you can kind of map that grid out. And people found that super useful. Um, people just kind of picked it up. Like they go into conversations with their managers and go, where am I on this thing? And they'd sort of point, and, and it would help people frame the, the next steps. So it became quite organic after that. It was like this thing just started existing. And by the time that we sort of went into the next uh, funding round and we did the next sort of reorg for, for larger size, we, we applied the new job titles. Amazing. So it sounds like um, the usefulness, people could see it immediately. And therefore, there wasn't really that much of a debate around what exactly goes where and which level. It takes the pressure off managers to have to come up with all of this themselves. Because if, if you, have a very high growth um, and very sort of like persuasive direct report who's always like, what's next? What's next? How do I get to the next level? And you don't have these tools. As a manager, it can just become incredibly stressful for you because you don't have any answers. But having 
some templates like that. And also, you know, doing it in such a way that people can discuss and debate and you can add revisions and you can go to new versions of it, I think opens up that career progression discussion to everybody because they can all contribute in as well. Amazing. So speaking of high growth, uh, you've jumped to another high growth company, Shopify. Uh, and so let's uh, uh, understand a little bit of a snapshot about what your current role looks like. So can you describe a little bit about your current sort of scope uh, and maybe what's similar or different from your experience of managing other managers? Yeah, good question. So I, I've been at Shopify almost two years now, just coming up to two years anniversary. And Congratulations. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, still here. Um, so the area that I lead is called Core Engage. Um, so there's an area of Shopify called Core, which is about 1,500 engineers, which is really the whole core of Shopify. It's, it's Shopify. Um, and then this is broken up into 10 different areas, which have different names. Um, our area is called Engage. And what Engage is all about, it's sort of based on the engagement of customers to merchants. So we do the whole kind of marketing tools and measurement stuff. So it's a broad span between lots of data ingest. So, you know, events that are happening on storefronts and linking them to customers and understanding and giving merchants the tools to see how people are interacting with their stores, but also built on top of all the, sort of the data and like the identity graph that we build. Um, there's a lot of smaller products which are finding their product market fit at different sizes, which is what makes it quite interesting. So as well as all the data to do with marketing and ad spend and attribution, built on top of that, we also have our marketing tool suite. So Shopify email, which is kind of like MailChimp, but internal. Shopify inbox, which is like intercom, but internal. And each of these products is like different phases of growth um, with lots of different UX and, and lots of different challenges in terms of how we scale them, how we get revenue from them, and how we fundamentally help merchants go from acquiring customers to getting repeat sales. So it's a really nice life cycle and it's a lot of different engineering disciplines, which makes it quite fun. Amazing. So it sounds like a very large group and, uh, you know, probably a small part of Shopify still considering how big the overall organization is. How do you keep on track of like all the things going on within your teams and then with your peers? Because even within the core, I understood there was 10 different groups. So that's like 10 different peers then, right? Yeah, it's 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 hard is, is the short answer. So I think in terms of our group, it's it fluctuates with time. I mean, we we do quite proactively sort of reallocate people maybe once a year, sometimes twice a year, to make sure we've always got the right people working on the strategic things that Shopify wants. So the group has fluctuated between 140 to 200 engineers um, around about the last um, year or so. And in terms of keeping track of what's going on, um, it's a lot of asynchronous um, work that goes on behind the scenes. So um, I've sort of shown screenshots of this at talks before, but we have like an internal wiki plus i'd call it called the vault and that's sort of shopify's internal knowledge base everyone has access to it regardless of your of your role and all of our projects our project updates all of our artifacts like design documents and decision logs are all kept in the system so for example i can go into this i can click on engage which is my area and it will show me all the projects that are different stages from proposal to prototype and so on um, and it kind of builds a dashboard for me to, to work off of, which is incredibly useful. That's the administrative side. Um, I think there's also the harder side, which is the connection with peers, connection with direct reports, skip levels. And that's where there's less prescriptive uh, action as how to do it. So personally, um, one-to-ones weekly with my directs um, and the seniority of my directs 
varies. I've got one person who's a director as well. I've got senior engineering managers. I've also got senior ICs, like a principal engineer and, and staff engineers. And we meet once a week. In terms of general chat, we have Slack channels for all of ourselves where I always try and keep interesting discussions going to some level of success. And then <laughs> within my own peers, who are all directors or VPs who have similar-ish sized um, areas, we meet once a week as well. Um, but we also have a Slack channel where we share things. Um, but as you rightly pointed out, the sheer breadth of things that is going on makes it very, very difficult to really focus in on what's important. So I think I don't have any concrete tips as to how to deal with that, but I think you have to, in my mind, operate with my department in mind as what should I input and output that would be beneficial to the department, try my best to filter the things out that I don't want to listen to because they're not super important, and then over-index on the things that I think are super important. Um, and those are either based on the KPIs that we're tracking towards, the mission that we're on, or things I think that will be really important in the future or for next year. Amazing. Um, you talked about one-to-ones, and there's actually a topic that you spent quite a bit of time in your book about. Um, do you have any reflections on are there differences about one-to-ones with managers versus one-to-ones with individual contributors that you manage? Um, and like, do the topics differ, or what, how, how how would you describe the differences if there are any between one-to-ones? Yeah, they are different. I mean, the the format's the same. Um, the general practice of of doing them is the same. But I think that the the content is very varied. And I think this is where I try and tune it to the individual as much as possible. So I know, for example, some of my reports are always super interested in strategy discussions, like where we're going in the next six months to a year, to bring their ideas to the table, to debate them. And I make sure that I spend time with those people talking about those things. I mean, it's super beneficial for me as well. But then I also know I have other directs who aren't as interested in that. So I tend to under-index on that, focus more on what they're working on, what are some of the technical challenges, you know, screen share me a demo of what you're working on. Let's have a look at some of the code. You know, it depends on the person. And I think really where it gets trickier with managing managers, as every manager knows for themselves, because it's almost like a you know recursive thing here, <laughs> um, there is no right way to do your job. So I don't really have any particular direction to give anybody. So you do put your coaching hat on quite a lot. You just probe, ask questions, try and expose what are some of the things that you're thinking about? What are some of the problems that you're digesting? Can I get you to surface them to me so then we can talk through them together? And maybe that can help un- unblock some thinking. I think none of my one-to-ones now are at all status updating. I think that's partially because of the seniority of the people that report to me. But I think also because so much of, is available async at Shopify, like all the project tracking, all the information is just kind of there. We don't really need to spend a lot of time talking about it. So yeah, it depends on the person. Tailor it to the person. Really, I think that it's mostly about me every week having an opportunity to increase the trust that I have between me and that person, as opposed to necessarily needing to have that time to make a decision or tell them to do something. Yeah, absolutely. And I I love that you talk about putting your coaching hat on um, because, yeah, I mean, these are highly empowered uh, managers who are sort of dealing with things. Do you have any managers um, that are managing areas where you have no background in that sort of technology or field? Yeah. So that's been quite interesting. So so earlier I was describing the different parts of Engage and the areas where we are building products like Shopify inbox and email and forms, 
that's where I feel fairly comfortable. I've done product engineering type stuff before. We've launched products to market in my previous company, product market fit, scaling. I'm cool with that. I've, I sort of have done that. There's an area that reports to me, um, which is all to do with um, ad attribution, um, identity matching, customer behavior, events, data. I'd never done anything like that before. So really the first year or so managing that area, it was more about, I want to spend time with you to really understand it better. Because fundamentally, if I'm responsible for what is happening in this area and I'm accountable, I have to really understand it because if there's some tiebreaker decision that then escalates to me, I have to really have the tools to to make that tiebreaker decision or or to or to even disagree with you because it's just very very hard. So I spend a lot of time with that team understanding what they did. One of the um, techniques I use for doing that, um, which was a technique I used for for every team really, was that in our team documentation there wasn't a huge amount of of specific onboarding material. So selfishly, when I onboarded and started to learn all these different teams, I said, hey, like, can you take me through, we'll record a video, half an hour, you share your screen, we'll start with the product, we'll look at it in, in the product itself, we'll click through it, and then go deeper, do an architecture diagram, show me what's happening as you're clicking around and doing these things and seeing these charts or doing that action. And then I'll record it and I'll embed it into each team page as to our little sort of safari around your area and, and learning what you do. and even though that was a, a way of potentially giving back to everybody else who was onboarding, that there's a video. Actually, it was completely for me. And, and that was oh, my win -win. Yeah, win-win. <laughs> so sure. that, was, that was my secret source for, for getting to know what people did. Um, so yeah, that, that area, I still am not an expert. I still rely very heavily on sort of my products and engineering counterparts there to help sometimes me understand the nuances, but I'm getting much better. Yeah, no, I mean, it's completely understandable with the number of teams and scope that you're you're dealing with is going to be those sort of areas. And what it sounds like, it's like you know what you don't know and you spend more time there uh, trying to get comfortable with those unknowns to ask the right questions and to be able to sort of understand where that risk profile is through the onboarding and spending more time with the teams. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it, it's good to be able to go deep when you need to go deep. And I, I try my best to build up enough of the fundamentals where hopefully if I had to review a pull request or I had to make an architectural decision that I would be able to do that with some amount of competence. Yep. Do you actually write any code in your role? Um, not anything that goes into production. I do mess about with, with things for prototyping for myself. Um, I mean, last week we had our, our hack days, which is something we do twice a year. So we have, uh, we have the Shopify editions launch, which is like our big splash of feature updates. And then the three days after that are called hack days where everyone joins a, a hack project and either build something or explore something. So I did actually do three days of programming last week, which was quite fun. Um, Amazing. But that's not a, not a regular occurrence. <laughs> special special uh, times of the year. Yeah. Amazing. Um, one of the other things you talked about with one-to-ones were skip one-to-ones. So how do you like to run them? Uh, do you have like... Yeah, times where people do things, or do you reach out specifically? What's what's your general philosophy or approach to skip one to ones? I do them monthly, and I try my best not to move them. I I, I do get around everybody. Um, I mean, the nice thing is that everyone who is a skip level is still a fairly experienced manager or individual contributor. So, in terms of needing to really prepare or steer, I don't have to. I pretty much just we have time booked in every month, 
and I'll just turn up and pretty much say, hey, you know, how are you doing? What you been working on? Let's talk about it. And uh, just open the floor really for letting them talk about anything that's on their mind to discuss um, anything that they're worried about. Maybe they want some input on. Because um, I, I find that, you know, sometimes if you come into skips with too much of an agenda or too much of a steer, even though it, I don't feel like it, that the seniority can overwhelm someone at a skip level sometimes. Like, oh, I've got like the director or the VP having a meeting with me. And it's like, they're just a human being. They're just trying to like, Get to know but what more. do they want? Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> what are they trying to find out that I don't know about? So I just leave it very, very open. Um, just take a healthy interest in what they're doing, what they're building, some of the things that are on their mind. Um, sometimes bring up some of the future roadmap or future strategic thinking that we're thinking about just to get opinions and just to say, really, you know, you can trust me. I'm here. My door's open you know in theory remotely and um <laughs> you know I, I'm, I'm always just a slap message away and i think that's the outcome really got it and so if i understand it right then you have a regular cadence with the same people for skips yeah um what how big is that sort of circle of skip people that you keep it's about 15 or 15 to 20 i think but i just do half hours got it and then um do you do any other sort of ad hoc skips Occasionally, occasionally, like if, if anyone suggests that someone might benefit from my time and I, I do ask, then I'll, I'll happily reach out. Um, I do have to be mindful though, that sometimes if I haven't spent a lot of time talking to somebody who isn't a skip and all of a sudden a meeting turns up in the calendar, that's not a cool mm. thing. Like people find that scary sometimes. So the, the flip side of, of that is that you know, we are a fairly asynchronous company and I do hang out in as many Slack channels as I can. And, you know, once a week, just peel through and, and just get involved in the conversation. So I'm not unavailable unless you have a meeting with me. I try and turn up in as many places in a open and, and lighthearted way as I can, because then I think it's less about needing lots of meetings with people. And it's more that they know that I'm there if, if uh, they need me. Amazing. Uh, let's turn to some of your more recent writings, because you've also started to publish on the engineeringmanager.com more things about managing managers. And one of the things that you sort of touched upon was managing through interfaces. So use this metaphor and in code interfaces. So what does that look like for you as a director? Yeah. So the, the code interface idea was, was really just defining like, what is it that you really need from people that report to you and what do they need from you? And then you can obfuscate away all the things that you don't need to worry about and just focus on what's important. And I think as, as somebody managing managers, there's a few sort of parts of that interface that are really important. Like no, number one, it really is about building trust. You know, everyone, fortunately, everyone who reports to me is, is really good, pretty senior. So I don't have to worry about the fundamentals too much. So it's really just building that trust every week and, and making sure that there's never any surprises, both in terms of things that are happening that I don't know about, but also projects being late. I, I really like the culture of no surprises. It's like, let's all just tell each other what's going on all the time. So that's that's number one. And I think the the other part is just making sure that, you know, I am accountable as are pretty much all the directors for a bunch of business metrics that, that drive Shopify and, and drive success for our merchants. So making sure that everything that we are doing in terms of our prioritization, what we're saying no to is always in line with that. So I, I always like to be able to talk about what we're doing now, what we're doing next, being able to sort of healthily debate whether that is the right thing to do or isn't the right thing to do. And I, I think that's something that I really benefit from as well, is that I always like someone trying to pick holes in what I'm thinking about because 
sometimes it's it's easy to convince yourself that something is right but harder to convince other people and, and that extra level of scrutiny is good so and and senior ICs as well that you know my interface with them is that look I'm not here to tell you what to do you know what you're doing you're a self-directed person but really I'm here to help leverage any ideas that you have to to get consensus around where we should be going to make sure that we are not overlapping other areas of the company when we're proposing new things because there is a, a lot of overlap in Shopify and sometimes some areas could easily belong to three different parts of the company and often you have to catch things as they're coming along and go hey like we should definitely do this but we should definitely also talk to these people and I think that's something I can bring to the table there. Amazing. Excellent. Um, another article that you recently wrote was the don't make yourself redundant. So why not as a manager or manager and what are the dangers? Yeah. So it's not like literally redundant, but it's it's it came originally from Andy Gross high output management where you've got one team, the team grows really big. Say you've got ICs, you keep hiring, you end up with like 15 ICs or something. Now you want to split the team makes sense too many people and maybe you're working on multiple things so let's say the company is growing they've got some headcount you might think okay we should divide this team into two teams and then what do you do and i think sometimes some people think this is a great opportunity for me to manage managers i will get two leads underneath me each of those leads runs one of the teams but then the question is what do you actually do and i think keeping busy enough in the details of what's going on underneath you is is not a bug it's actually really really healthy and in the book he suggests that if you're going to split the team get one manager reporting to you managing one of the teams and have the other team report to you because then you are still less in the weeds but you're still just as busy and just as useful and i think we have seen in industry over the last um year especially as there's been lots of reductions in force that the amount of management layers has been something that's been reported on quite a lot. And I think sometimes during growth phases, you know, you're trying to shape an org for a future state, and then you end up with lots of layers, lots of managers, and very easily and without any, um, you know, any bad intentions, you can just end up with people who, it's not even very clear what they do other than just a layer, a translation layer in the org chart between some area and another area. And I think it's just really important that people aren't striving to become as detached from the ground as possible as they progress. You know, you always want to make sure that you've got enough skin in the game of what your org is doing before you detach. You know, like if you think about it, when you're hiring and you bring on three or four managers underneath you for the future, you then need to hire like 50 people to become completely saturated. So I think in the past, over the growth phases, we have made too many managers almost redundant in their roles by growing too quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely uh, recount that and, and that idea of maybe not the manager first, but maybe a bigger team. Okay, you're going to overwhelm a manager, but the reverse problem is often a lot more questionable about a manager uh, what are they actually doing then, right? Yeah, so. and it's a dangerous position. You know, you have to also hedge against well, what happens in the future if the company that you work for is going to decrease in size. Yeah. Well, you look at all the individual contributors and you're like, well, everyone is really busy. And then you look at this management layer and you go, well, there's five layers of management here. Like, where, what are these people doing? So I think you also, you know, in your own growth, have to watch out for any any traps of falling into that. 
because you want to make sure that you've always got really clear things to do, that you're, you're hands-on enough and, and that you've always got a chance to be impactful because as soon as you are just a management interface between two parts of the org, there's usually a bug there. Absolutely. Uh, too many levels of uh, abstraction, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so what are maybe some new skills or activities um, of managers uh, managers of managers that they would need to build that they maybe haven't done as a manager of individual contributors before? I think uh, you have to work harder at managing upwards. I think the more senior levels that you report to in a company, you may maybe have found in your previous role running one team that you're your lead had lots and lots of time for you. The more senior that you get, you find out that your manager is exceptionally busy, especially if they're on the exec. And maybe you get a very limited opportunity to meet with them once every two weeks or three weeks just because of their, their schedule. So you have to work out what works for you in how best to get what you need out of them. And sometimes this can almost just be using them as an imaginary avatar where you are interacting with them in a way that actually benefits you the most. So that sounds really nebulous. But what I mean is like, for example, if you have an incredibly busy manager, it could actually be really helpful for you to drive your accountability to write them a really detailed asynchronous update once a week. It's like, here's all the things that I've done this week. Here's what the team have been doing. Because even if they don't read it, you've gone through that process of, of really mm -hmm. clarifying the progress that you've made this week and what works for you. So I think managing upwards and providing your manager what they need to make sure that they know that you're doing a good job, but also that you feel that you're getting the time that you need is super important. Yeah. And uh, other responsibilities or activities that might be a surprise for first-time managers managers, what, what would be some other examples? I think as I moved into manager of managers, it's where I felt the tension a lot more between this is the thing that's right for the team and this is the thing that's right for the business. And sometimes mm -hmm. those aren't the same. Yeah. So, you know, managing one team, I think there's a lot, out there about you know really trying to cultivate the culture of a team make it super healthy and you know you've always got the back of your your teammates you may find that when you're a manager of managers you're forced with a hard decision of like no actually we have to get this out next week and there's nothing else we can do about it and even though i know that's not cool i have to stand up behind it and i have to tell you that and i have to i have to embody that decision and i think that's where you know you're you're more exposed to the the executive and the business side and you have to understand that you're probably going to be the bad guy sometimes. It's just it's just how it is. And that's where all of the trust foundation is so important because occasionally when there is something that people won't be happy about or changes that are disruptive that you have to bring about, um, you've got that trust underneath um, to support it. I can definitely see that. And I've definitely been in those places as well, those awkward conversations where you go, oh, they're definitely not going to like this, but it does need to be done, right? Yeah. So, it's like, we're, we're just stopping this project. <laughs> yep. Uh, is, there anything, <laughs> is there anything that's helped you get through those conversations easier? I think you just have to always be completely transparent. You know, if you, if you have... Yeah. If you have decisions that are being made that people don't be happy about, you just have to stand behind them, be transparent. Um always have the space around those decisions for people to vent at you if they have to. Um, always create the space um, for people to talk. But fundamentally, you do have to believe them. You know, every, every difficult decision to change the size of a team based on priorities or to stop a project or to pivot or to do any of these things, you, you can't come into them as a leader not believing that they're right because people will see straight through you. 
Yeah, absolutely. So maybe coming to a bit of a close as we uh, sort of come up to our hour, um, what advice or tips would you give for people thinking about transitioning into a manager or manager role? Good question. So I think things that come to mind are, I mean, one, there really isn't any correct way to do your job. That's the first thing you learn. No one's telling you how to do it. You may not know how to do it. So you just have to do your best. And, you know, as time goes on, you build up your intuition as to how you should act in that role. You know, it's almost like you start with a machine learning model that's just untrained and you have no data. You don't know what the output should be. So it's a process of continually being exposed to new situations, doing your best, sometimes getting it right, sometimes failing and just adapting as you go on. I mean, it's, it's just a new gig. It really is a new gig that you have to, you have to work it out. I think um, the other thing which we touched upon earlier about sometimes not getting much time from your own manager, you just have to build a muscle of self-resiliency and, and just being able to set your own direction to understand that no one's telling you what to do. Um, you're kind of on your own and that may not be true everywhere, but it is true if, if you're you know in a large company or you have a manager on a very different time zone, which can happen. So you just need to be confident in in what you're doing you know believe in yourself um and also build up a, a good network of peers and i think that's sometimes where people fail a lot in in managing managers roles they forget that often they have maybe six seven eight amazing peers who are all in exactly the same boat as them but they never talk and they never just go hey like we should just chat once a week or like just just hang out no reason and never lean into that peer group but that peer group is amazing you know if you think if you think that you're good, like well, there's like loads of others of like you all right there. Why not? Why not lean on them and talk to them? Um, and I think uh, the other thing is just visibility. So you know, we've all worked for for managers where you just never see what they're doing ever, and you wonder what they're up to. And if, especially if you're remote, you're like, what are they even doing? Like I don't know. So something I I try, and I think because it helps also keep me accountable to other people is. I try and be as visible as I can. You know, for example, in the channel with my direct reports, I'm always writing something in there every every day, every, every other day, either a conversation topic or, oh, hey, I've just seen this this document, which is a, a tech design for this area. Like, this is really interesting. What do you think? And just really kind of like turn the dial up on on sharing and visibility and just being around so that no one has the question of to what you're doing because it should just be very self-evident by your output. Amazing. Some really, really great advice and tips. And I, I definitely could have used this a lot earlier in my career as well. So thank you. No worries. Uh, where can people find more about you or reach out to you on the internet? Yeah, good question. So uh, theengineeringmanager.com is my blog um, and you can find all my links through there in the about section. I'm Jay Stanier pretty much everywhere. Um, so Jay from James and Stanier, my surname. Um, so that's on Twitter or X or whatever we are in the middle of the transition of now um, <laughs> and, and other places as well. Um, I'm always open for a chat. Just let me know. Amazing. Uh, and thank you very much for spending the, the time with me. I feel we could spend hours talking about so many other topics, but I uh, really want to appreciate you sharing your time and advice and your experience on the podcast today. No, you're welcome. It's been great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Managing Managers podcast. You can find the transcript and the show notes at www.managingmanagers.tech. If you enjoyed the content, please be sure to rate and subscribe to be informed about new episodes. Also, consider sharing this podcast with another person who might benefit. Until next time.